So if you will, please turn with me to the book of Titus as we begin our study there. Titus, we'll begin chapter 1, looking at the first four verses, Paul's introductory remarks to the book. This is a great text for our Reformation Sunday, as we'll see, ties right into the themes of the Reformation. Um, So before we go to the text, let's go to the Lord, ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, again, we pray that you would uh, instruct us with it, lead us to the truth therein, uh, convict our hearts of sin. Um, We know, Lord, that these are your words, and because they're your words, they have authority over us. They teach us about you. They teach us how we ought to live. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us with that, help us to understand, open our hearts, open our eyes. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And so today is Reformation Sunday, as you've heard uh, many times, and we celebrate it because of its proximity to October 31st, which is the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. Um, Again, the, the whole idea here was that he was concerned about some of the practices of the Roman Catholic Church as a whole, not with that particular church, but just the Roman Catholic Church as a whole, and he was he desired at this point in his life to stick to Scripture alone, and it was these protests that he had along with his cry of Scripture alone and, and faith alone that led to the Protestant Reformation, and of course, the rest is history. Um, And it all started when Luther began to see the righteousness of God for what it was worth, a righteousness that far surpassed his own and left him without any excuse and therefore any recourse when it comes to his relationship with God. And so for him at first, he saw this, He saw the righteousness of God, and he looked at his own righteousness and saw himself as a disgusting person. He remained angry at God because of this, because of God's righteousness, a righteousness that was completely unattainable because of that. He felt that the Christian life then was meaningless. There was no point to trying to live right. Even as a monk, he was was a monk at the time, he lived above reproach. He lived as good as anyone could live. He would actually painstakingly write down every single sinful deed and thought that he created and made, and then he would go and confess them and have these giant long lists. And it wasn't until later, upon further prayer and meditation of the Word, that he finally came to Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17, and that's where the Lord opened his eyes. And it wasn't that he had never read this text before. Luther probably could have recited a whole lot of the New Testament by this point in his life. But for some reason, the Lord used these two verses right then and there to open his eyes. Turn with me to Romans 1, and let's look at this quickly before we get into our text in Titus. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says this. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, And also to the Greek. 
for it is the righteousness of God, or for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And it was these words that really stuck to Luther. And he said this in a prelude of one of his books. He said, and I'll quote him, he said, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, those who through faith, or he who through faith is righteous, Shall live. That's what we just read in 117. There I have there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by the gift of God, namely by faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which with which merciful God justifies us by faith, as it is written, He who through faith is righteous shall live. These words cut him. They were an awakening for him. This is what began his protest of the Roman Catholic Church that wasn't saying this at all. They were saying, by the righteousness of God and by your own righteousness, you shall live. And so what, what was their cry then? What was the cry of the reformers? We are righteous through faith, and that faith is a gift of God. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, and that faith is a gift of God. And here we are 500 years later, and we're still wrestling daily with this idea, are we not? And now you'll, you'll find very few Christians who will outright just straight up say, it's your works that will save you. Well, you won't find any Christians that will say that because I dare say that someone who says that doesn't really understand Christ. No one's going to outright say that. However, it isn't by what we say that proves that we cling to this doctrine. It's the way that we live our lives. We live in such a way as to show that we really trust our own righteousness rather than the righteousness of Christ. And so here in Paul's letter to Titus, he begins with one of his longest introductions, actually. And in it, there is enough theology for us to sit and think for a long time. He really begins to outline here in these first four verses the purpose of the book, which is a treatise against false teachers. And the message of those false teachers is this, salvation by works. And with that, the idea, the idea that that truth manifests itself is, is godliness. That there should be no separation between the belief that a person claims and the behavior that they show. So as we look at this text, I want us to consider um, three main ideas from these first four verses. That salvation is planned, salvation brings godliness, and salvation comes through the word. And so with that, let's stand together as we read from God's word, Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, 
promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So a few things uh, as we begin the letter we just need to be reminded of. Uh, first, again, Paul's authority over the church as an apostle. He opens up the letter by letting us know that he is a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Last week we talked about in Sunday school how the New Testament came to be, how the text itself began to impose itself on the church, and the whole church recognized that as a thing, kind of, kind of unilaterally saying these scriptures have authority over us. And that was another thing that proved their inspiration as well. And the church brought that together, one of those criteria being apostolic authorship. Why? Well, the church then recognized the authority of the apostles and their writings to the church. So as Paul writes, he draws upon where he gets that authority. A servant of God. An apostle of Jesus Christ. And don't miss this here. As he says, a servant of God, he's really using more of an Old Testament kind of language. Aligning himself with the first writers of Scripture. Moses, David, the prophets, all of those in the Old Testament that foretold the coming of Christ. An apostle of Jesus Christ, aligning himself with those who lived with Christ in his life. Paul's authority is derived from God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His words were authoritative then, and they are now. We don't make a distinction between the words of Jesus and the words of Paul as if there's some distinction for the Christian life and we need to consider sometimes Jesus, sometimes Paul. Well, Jesus said this, Paul didn't. We don't make those distinctions. All of the words are the words of God. Some might wonder why we should continually make this point that Paul has authority over us as he writes these words. These are the words of God. Why do we need to keep making this point? But you might also wonder why the church is in the place it's in today. The truth of Scripture never gets old, and we, brothers and sisters, never stop forgetting that. And so we need to be reminded all the time, because we are sinful. That's why we're here. That's why 500 years ago there had to be a Reformation, and that's why 500 years ago we still celebrate that today. Because we cannot forget that if we forget the words of Scripture, if we forget the authority it has over us, everything else falls apart. And so now we have Titus mentioned here. We saw him mentioned in Second Timothy there at the end as a worker of the gospel. He was one that was being sent to a place called Dalmatia, which is what modern-day Croatia. He's mentioned in several places also in the New Testament in Second Corinthians. Turn there with me to Second Corinthians so we can get a, a picture of of Titus as a person. Um, I think it's good sometimes to look at these New Testament characters as Paul talks about them in other places because it helps us to get a little bit more 
of them personally as opposed to the instructions that they're being given. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll see Paul talking about him. He apparently had sent Titus to the church in Corinth, and here he uh, refers to, to Titus. 2 Corinthians 7, look with me at verses 5 and 6. He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. And he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. Look at verses 13 through 15, same chapter. Therefore we are comforted, and besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit had been refreshed by you all. For whatever boast I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have perfect confidence in you. And so what do we learn about Titus here? Well, we learn that he was a beloved friend of Paul. He brought comfort to Paul when he was afflicted and the others there there that he joined. He was trusted by Paul to do some work in his most difficult churches, Corinth being one of those churches. But yet, when he came back from Corinth, he talked about how much he loved that church. He was refreshed by the Corinthians, which must have been a difficult thing as you read through First and Second Corinthians. And his affection toward them grew after he met with the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, that's someone who loves the church, who sees the fault of the sheep, yet loves them anyway. So as we come to this letter, we have correspondence from an apostle to one who was considered a comforter to one who loved the church of Jesus Christ. And I think it should be a help for us and an encouragement for us as we look at these words in the coming weeks. And so first, I want to look at a salvation that is planned. Paul says he's a servant and an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. So for Paul, his work was to the ones and for the ones that Jesus came for, his people, his sheep. Remember Jesus said this, he says, my sheep hear my voice and they come to me. Well, when his sheep came to him in the New Testament... They did so oftentimes through the ministry of Paul. And Paul was there to welcome them in, to teach them about their newfound faith. Notice in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before ages began. This was the truth that was promised before the ages began. The eternal life of the people of God is something promised from the foundations of the earth. What do we do with this term, God's elect? What is that? Well, it's a noun form of a verb that's used 
in Ephesians chapter 1. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1 to remind us of that text. Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which with, uh, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Up there in verse 4, even as he chose us in him from the foundation of the world, that is the verb form of the noun that Paul uses here in verse 2, God's elect, or verse 1 in Titus 1, God's elect. So who are God's elect? The ones that he chose from the foundations of the earth. And it's for their sake that Paul does the work that he does. And for the sake of their faith that he writes the words that we have before us this morning. So for us, we have to understand that something that God has planned and promised from the foundations of the earth will come true. And it has. Was there a problem with him accomplishing this task? Think about that for a minute. Well, yes, it was the sin that that we had as unbelievers that blocked him from doing that, not blocked him in a way that he was somehow thwarted by it. But we as sinners could not stand before a holy God. The problem is for us, not for God. He didn't have a problem. Adam sinned, and therefore we all sinned, and in that sin, we deserve death justifiably. And so if God makes the rules and the consequences, and I break those rules, then I should get the consequences. It makes sense. He's the creator. He can do that. And and for those who trust in their own ability then to solve that problem, I'm a sinner. I need salvation. God doesn't accept sinners who continually are going against his will, that's a problem. And if they're using their own righteousness in order to solve that problem, well, they're uh, going to have eternal separation from God in a place called hell. What about for those who trust God's plan and whose promises to save his people? They'll get the prize. How does, did he solve that problem? How did God go about solving the problem of our sin then for those of us who trust in him? He didn't make us better, that's for sure. He didn't do it because of our own righteousness. He didn't make our righteous stronger or better, because even at our best, it wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't even be close. So what did he do? He came himself. Jesus Christ, Son of God, came to earth and became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. His righteousness was the only thing that could save us, and it did. And what did we do to deserve it? Nothing. Why did he choose me from the foundations of the earth? No reason in me, nothing that I did. 
What do we do to stay then in his good graces? Nothing. I can assure you, at least from my end, that's not the case. So then how do we live? Well, he answers that. Salvation brings godliness is the next point. Look there again at verse 1. For the sake of the faith of the God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Which accords with godliness. Meaning, godliness is a natural outflowing then of the faith that we have. Not godliness that produces some sort of meritorious righteousness. Meaning, another way of saying that, the righteous acts that flow from our faith now, the ones that we do because we have been saved are not there to save us. They're not there to make us have right standing before God or somehow earn his favor now that we have it. Look, I'm doing good things, therefore I'm more favorable than you. You're not doing those good things. That's not at all how that works. It's his righteousness that saved us and his righteousness that continues to hold us in that favor. So it's nothing on our account. But our righteous acts are what flow from the faith that he gives us. A faithful believer who knows the truth will live a life of godliness. And this is where the gospel many times falls off the rails or comes off the rails many times in pulpits, in our own personal lives. I think we readily acknowledge the fact that, again, good works don't own us or earn us salvation. Nobody's going to say, yes, I'm a good person and that makes me saved. No one actually says that, at least initially. No one would be able to get away with saying that, of course. But even, even the most nominal Protestant believer turns their nose up at that idea. But where do we go off the rails then? Well, it's usually the way that we look at the lives of other people, right? Wow, I can't, can you believe she said that? Doesn't she go to church? Or his kids are bad news. I thought they were Christians. I saw that biology teacher in the beer store the other day. Think his church knows? These are all things we say, right? These are all things we've definitely heard. We know we say them. We've all heard the parable of the publican. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18 real quick. This is a parable that I, I continually go back to when I am becoming the one who is saying those things. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. You've all heard this. <clears throat> he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Oh, it's almost exactly like he is writing this for us. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself 
will be exalted. A uh, theologian by the name of Robert Ferrer Capon said this concerning this, um, this parable. He said, We are glad to hear sinners pray the prayer of the tax collector as long as they come back next week with the prayer of the Pharisee in their back pocket. We're glad to hear someone say, God, be merciful to me, as long as they come back and they act right next week because we can't have any of that acting bad. Remember, we aren't the standard for godliness. Jesus is, and we all fall short. And so we should all beat our breasts saying, God, be merciful to us. We are sinners. But we have to be careful, right? Because this coin has two sides. And because if that same biology teacher drinks, leaves drunk five nights a week, refuses counsel from his elders and his church members, and is horrible to his family without any shade of repentance, then what do we do? That's something completely different, right? Well, you go to him personally, and if he doesn't listen, you take another. If he still doesn't listen, you take the church with you. And if there's no repentance, then you treat him like an unbeliever. That isn't Mike's guide to conflict management. That's from our Lord Jesus in Matthew 18. We all are called to godly living. And a true faith in Jesus Christ, 100% of the time, will produce godly living. The spirit inside us cannot manifest itself in bad works continually. Yes, we'll all continue in sin. We are not the standard for righteousness. We cannot then judge other people according to the good works that we do because, wow, we would fall way short because our good works are a pile of rags. They're garbage. But we will also walk in the good works that have been prepared for us in Christ Jesus. We read that in Ephesians 2. And so then, what should we do with this doctrine? Being godly, being called to godliness, but yet having a faith that is a gift to us, not anything from us. Well, we have to handle it carefully. It's a dangerous path that exists between legalism and lawlessness. Jesus calls this path the narrow road. Few will walk it. Many will choose to let their own righteousness stand before God and they will be found wanting. Or they'll think that the little prayer that they said when they were eight saves them and now they can somehow live like a rank pagan. There's a very narrow road between those. We have to be careful, brothers and sisters. Let us walk together down this road. We can't do it alone. This is why the Christian walk is a hard one, this very issue. So it has to be done in the fellowship of a church. We cannot do it alone. There is no way. Everyone is vulnerable. Pastors, elders, deacons, sweet little Christian kids, Every single one of us, we need help. We need one another, and so let us do that. And so lastly, salvation comes from the Word. Verse 2 and 3. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promises, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So this word, the gospel, has manifested itself at the proper time through the preaching of Paul and those after him. 
And notice this, and notice after this intro, I love this, from Titus, he addresses it to Titus, and he says, a child in a common faith. And this faith that he's addressed already, this is a common faith, a shared faith. How was it a shared faith then? It's the same way it is now. The word of God delivered to the apostles, preached from their lips, taught to faithful men and women who then taught others. It's the same way it's being done today through the word of God every day, preaching of the word of God, teaching of the word of God, sharing of the word of God to anyone who will hear it. This is a common faith. This is a faith that we share with those like Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli, John Knox, John Wycliffe, all these names that you've heard from times past. They live, or their faith, stood when it was hard. And they had to stand in their faith when it was tough. When the Roman Catholic Church was after them, and the church was more powerful than the government. They stood for this common faith. Scripture alone is the authority for our faith and practice. Scripture tells us that we have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. They ran and hid. Many of them died for this common faith. And so what do we do with it, brothers and sisters? First of all, we don't worship these men that I listed. We thank God for them, but we don't worship them. Second, we must not forget this common faith because sadly it has become more and more uncommon in pulpits in this country and even in the pulpits of this city and this county. We have to be careful. If we stop preaching the gospel, even for a Sunday, we are at risk of forgetting and we already so easily forget. We are so prone to wonder Don't ever wonder why I tell you many of the same things every week, the same gospel every week, because there's only one gospel, brothers and sisters, and we need to hear it every single day of our lives, lest we forget. Because when we forget, the church is doomed. It's because we do forget, right? This is why we come to the table every single week. Because we forget. We start to think that we're good enough. We start to want to put our own righteous acts on that table next to Christ. Don't we? Because we meet his perfect standard. We forget. We leave church on Sunday praising his name. And by Wednesday we already want to rewrite the gospel. We struggle. We do. We need it in our lives. And if you don't think the church can forget then talk to some faithful Christians in their 70s and 80s today. They'll tell you. They'll let you know how the church has forgotten. So let us cling, brothers and sisters, to this common faith that we have, which we have in the Word of God, which we preach and teach unashamedly, and and help us to stand behind that without fear. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, we rest upon the promises of God Let us not forget them. When you do, let me encourage you, please text, call someone, ask them to tell you about Jesus. We all need to be reminded. I do that sometimes. 
I'll text my best friend and just tell me something good. I need to hear it. If you don't think you need a reminder, you do. Let us live as if these promises are true as well. Our faith produces godliness, so let us be free to be godly. It's a good thing. It isn't required of us for our salvation, but a saved person will show it every single time. Let us show the world our godliness so that they might know our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And again, let us embrace our common faith, not only here at Redeemer, but let us lift up regularly the other churches in town all the time, the the works that they're doing, the ministries that they're doing, that their ministries might grow and thrive because of the preaching of the true gospel. Let us not forget to lift them up. We share a common faith with them. Let us rest in that common faith. Let us rest in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are sorry because we often forget the gospel. It only takes a few days, really, and we start to rely on our own truth and our own strength to bring us through the week, but yet it's always empty. And so, Lord, help us to remember the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel to save, the promises that you've given us before the foundations of the earth and even today. We are thankful that faithful men have stood in the gap. Help us, Lord, as faithful men and women to stand for this common faith that we have. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.